our family does during Advent every year uh, is we we pick something uh, different every year, but we have regular readings that we try to do. We don't always hit them all, you know, 25 days or whatever, 20, 26, 27 days, whatever it may be. But um, we do try to uh, consistently do different readings throughout Advent uh, leading up to Christmas Day. Um, the Jesus Storybook Bible has been one that we've done over the years uh, and uh, just different other, other mostly children's books. Um, this year, we'll be doing, uh, a, I think it's all scriptural readings um, that, uh, from this website called The Common Rule, uh, which is a, it's actually a book that we're going to be having as our resource of the month in January. I just read it this week, fantastic book um, on habits and uh, setting a rule of life, you know, um, for yourself that keeps you consistent and persistent in your pursuit of the Lord. Very, very helpful book, but he has different uh, Advent readings, so we're going to be doing that. And I say all that to say uh, we do have an Advent book. Um, There's several copies of it back there uh, by David Mathis. It's the white book. There's two stacks of it back on the the bookshelf, Um, and I would encourage you, if you don't have anything planned, to pick up a copy of that. Um, It's got different meditations on uh, Advent, on the coming of the Lord, one for each day to be read beginning today uh, throughout the, the Christmas season, the Advent season. So if you don't have anything planned, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of that. Um, you won't find it cheaper anywhere else. So uh, we sell those books mostly at a discount and or all at a discount. Let me say it that way. This one is at a significant discount. Um, so for $5, you can't beat it with a stick. So I would encourage you to, uh, to grab a copy of that if you don't have anything anything planned. Um, We're going to uh, go back to our gospel series. I'm going to press pause on that. I was really enjoying that, uh, and uh, we're going to go back to that come the new year, and I'm looking forward to getting into two more uh, studies in the gospel series. We've got to finish that up, Um, but obviously today's the first Sunday of Advent, and so uh, we're going we're gonna to be looking at a, a series uh, you can see on the screen there called Songs of Advent uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, I'm sure beyond just readings for Advent, you and your family have different traditions that you do throughout the holiday season. Um, they come in all shapes and sizes, uh, but I have no doubt that your traditions, at least to some extent, involve Christmas music. Um, I mentioned it earlier, and I love Christmas music. Uh, And if you think about it, there's no other time of the year, maybe Easter a little bit, but nothing like Christmas has its own musical catalog, right? I mean, there are songs that we pull out and we we listen to and we sing just at this time of year every year. Um, No other time has its own unique songs like Christmas does. And I'm sure if I asked you to to name your favorite Christmas album that probably all of you would be able to, to name maybe your top Christmas album or your top two or three or whatever. I'm sure you could do that. You have something that you regularly go back to. Um, and those of you that say Michael Buble's Christmas, you would be correct. That would be the best Christmas album that there has ever been. Ella Fitzgerald's Swingin' Christmas would be close. That would be up there as well. But uh, you know, I hope you enjoy some good Christmas music. And the reason that those, those songs come back every year and that we sing them and we enjoy them is that songs matter immensely 
in our lives and our traditions and our rhythms of living. And they matter particularly in our spiritual lives. I mean, music impacts people all across the board in every walk of life, but, but particularly in our spiritual lives. Um, when it comes to, to our Christian lives, songs ground truths in us in, in unique ways, in special ways. They connect our intellect and our emotion and our body in a lot of ways and sort of holistically bring truths to bear on, on our lives. And so there's, there's really nothing like songs in some ways to, to bring truths to bear on us and to, to build them into us. Um, you, you find yourself singing songs throughout the week and you're like, where did that come from? Um, we find ourselves singing children's songs <laughs> regularly because we'll hear something on a kid's show and we, it comes back to us and the tune gets in there. Um, and that's an amazing gift from the Lord to, to help us to remember biblical truths um, you know, in a lot of ways. And so it's important that we, we pay careful attention to what we sing, to what we listen to, uh, and, and Christmas is, is very helpful in, in singing the truth and thinking about the incarnation. Um, it's never really struck me, though, until this year. Uh, I was kind of trying to prep for, for a series on Advent, wondering what we would talk about. And it, it never struck me that in the first couple of chapters of Luke, where you, you see the Christmas story unfolded, there are actually four different songs, full songs, that are given. Uh, and they're Christmas songs in the first couple of chapters of Luke. Uh, it's really an amazing thing. And so what we're gonna do in, in our four Sundays of Advent this year is we're gonna look at each of these songs um, in succession and go through these and study them and meditate on them. So you can open up to Luke uh, chapter one, which is where we're gonna begin this morning. Now what's amazing about each of these songs, as you'll see over the next few weeks, is that each of these songs present the coming of the Lord Jesus in his incarnation as the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations. Each of them connect the coming of the Lord back to the Old Testament. And obviously, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, this is what we talked about, and this is one of our primary emphases when it comes to the gospel. We don't want to just get you know, creation and fall and get to Genesis 3 and then skip all the way over to the death of the Lord Jesus. Paul says over and over again that the gospel includes the story of Israel in the Old Testament. We don't just skip from Genesis 3 forward. And so Luke is going to make those connections for us between Old Testament and the coming of Christ through these, these songs. Um, the incarnation, the life, and the death of the Lord Jesus are the climax of a story that has begun in the Old Testament. If you look back uh, at, at Luke, maybe you're right there, Luke chapter 1 and verse 1, I want to show you how Luke does this and, and, and really what his purpose is in his gospel. Um, Luke's gospel is famous for these opening words. He tells us what he's trying to accomplish through his gospel. But I want, to, I want you to notice something that he says in verse 1 that maybe you've never thought about before. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, I have the ESV. If you have the ESV or the New American Standard, they both say accomplished there. But 
almost every other translation, I think, does a little bit of a better job than the ESV here and uses the word fulfilled there. The Greek word is a word that is almost always translated fulfilled and not accomplished. And so what Luke is saying here is that he is going to narrate his primary purpose in writing this gospel is to narrate the things that have been fulfilled among the the Jewish people, the events that they've seen take place. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to connect the events surrounding the Lord Jesus Christ back to the Old Testament and show you how these events fulfill what was promised and expected in the Old Testament. The hopes of the Old Testament, the promises, all of that is fulfilled in the events I'm going to unfold to you. And you see that quite clearly in the first song of Advent that we're going to get to, Luke 1, verses 46 through 56. So you can flip over there uh, if you need to change the page. But uh, this song is probably familiar to you. Uh, It's called the Magnificat, is, is the name that is often given to this song. It's a song of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I want to... I want to show you what we're going to see in this song, and then we'll start working through it. So we're going to see in Luke 1, 46 through 56, we're going to see three ingredients of God's salvation for which he is to be magnified. All right, so I'll say it again. Three ingredients of God's salvation. That's on the screen, but then this little extra part here, for which he is to be magnified. The first one of these in verses 46 to 49, is personal deliverance. Now, as believers, when we sing, obviously, when we sing to the Lord, one of the things we're doing is singing to worship him. Songs are sung as songs of worship to the Lord. And so that's why I add that extra phrase on this. These are three ingredients of salvation for which God is to be magnified and worshiped and honored. And so everything this week, and really everything throughout this whole series that we talk about, is meant to be turned from meditation for our own hearts to exaltation to the Lord. We internalize it, we think about it, we meditate on these truths, we see the connections to the Old Testament, but then we turn these truths into worship and magnification of God's character and his work, and his name. And so we don't just think about these things for our own benefit, but we receive the benefit, and then we enjoy, we sing these truths out to the Lord. And that's what each of the people who write these songs and who sing these songs do. They're magnifying and worshiping the Lord here. And it's certainly easy when you get to Mary's song here to see how this is a song of of worship. Look at verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, I told you this is often called the Magnificat, and it's because in Latin, the very first word in this song is the word magnified, and in Latin, it's Magnificat. And so Mary is praising God for something. What is she praising him for? Four, look at verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. 
Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, as you look at these first couple of verses here, verse 46 through 49, you can see that Mary's praise is very personal. She uses a lot of personal pronouns here, my situation, right? She's talking about all that God has done for her personally. And one of the key things she says in verse 48 is that God has looked on her humble estate. Now that word that's translated humble estate there, that often is talking about someone who is economically deprived, they're poor, or who is socially on the bottom rung of the ladder. This is a person you would describe someone who has a humble estate as someone who doesn't really matter to society and doesn't have a lot of economic resources to use in life. And so Mary here recognizes that she, socially and economically speaking, is not an important person. She's not a significant young woman. And in that situation, she certainly did not expect to receive any sort of special attention from God. Why would she have received this? But here, she recognizes that she has received this special grace and attention from God, and she's praising God for that. And she's praising God for the way that her situation, her personal situation, fits into God's larger plan for his people. And that's a connection you have to keep in mind here when you think about Mary's praise to the Lord. Her personal situation always fits into a larger purpose and a larger plan, and she recognizes that. So so what has God done for Mary? And then by extension, doing it for Mary, what has he done for her people, for the nation of Israel? Why is she singing this song of praise to God for her personal deliverance, which then unfolds into praise for what God has done for his people? Well, we have to look back and understand what Mary was told about her circumstances. So look back to Luke 1, verse 26. And I want to read this whole section here where Gabriel comes to Mary and explains to her what's going to happen to you, to her. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he, Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
and the angel departed from her. And so Mary is excited about what the Lord is doing for her in the birth of this child, but she also understands that this birth fits within a much bigger story. She's not just excited for a gender reveal, right? She's not just excited for a baby to be born to her. I mean, there's a wonderful, obviously, reality about children being born into the world, but that's not the full reason that Mary is exuberant and praising the Lord here. She heard these words from Gabriel, the angel, and she knows what can be expected from this child. She also knows that her personal situation is a microcosm of how God is going to work for the nation of Israel. Her situation in small is what God is going to do for the entire nation. And we'll see in a few minutes, he exalts the humble, the poor, and the needy and puts down the proud and the rich. And ultimately, God is going to do this work through the birth of this baby that would come to her. Now, if, you, if you've read through this psalm, this song that Mary gives us here, you probably recognize some close connections to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. And we won't go back and look at that, but there are There are quite a number of of connections and overlaps in the language between Mary's song and between Hannah's song. And we don't have time to get into all the similarities. I would encourage you to go back and look at those on your own and compare those two songs. But both of those women are praising the Lord because babies are going to be born to them in unique circumstances, circumstances that seem impossible, But the Lord works it out, and both of them are having babies at crucial moments in Israel's history. Things are not going well in 1 Samuel. It's the time of the judges. Things are not going well for Israel here. They're under Roman occupation. And both babies that are born end up bringing deliverance to the nation of Israel as a part of God's plan. Now, obviously, Samuel is only a foreshadowing of the deliverance that this baby will bring, but they're both similar in that way. And so what does Gabriel tell Mary? I I read it, but I want to go back and look in more detail at what he says to her. Look at verses 32 and 33. Three things. There's three major parts to Gabriel's message about this baby. Verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Second, God will give him the throne of his father, David. Third, he will reign over the house of Jacob or over the nation of Israel forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That is an amazing series of promises regarding the nation of Israel that God has given to Mary about her son. One author put it like this. It's on the screen here. The effect, then, of Gabriel's words is to kindle the reader's expectation that God's ancient promise to David will now find its fulfillment, despite the intervening years of exile. And it'll find its fulfillment in an everlasting kingdom ruled by a king who is both son of David and son of the one who gave the promise. And so in verse 47, go back down to the song that Mary gives us here. In verse 47, when Mary rejoices in God, my Savior, she's not thinking of personal salvation in quite the same way that you and I would. 
She's not thinking necessarily about forgiveness of sins. What she's thinking about is God is bringing deliverance to her people, to her nation, and she has been caught up and is an instrument in what God is doing. And she's praising the Lord that she gets to be involved in bringing about this deliverance by God's gracious choice. Now, since this is primarily about God's deliverance of his people, then we need to move here from Mary's personal involvement in this, her personal deliverance, to the way in which God accomplishes his salvation for Israel. And this is the the second ingredient in God's salvation. So there's personal deliverance here, and then I'll explain what this means. There's eschatological reversal in verses 50 to 53. Verse 50, this sets the principle that's going to be worked out in verses 51 to 53. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, I want you to notice here the movement from verse 49. There's holiness. Holy is God's name to verse 50. And now she begins talking about his mercy. And we don't often put those two together, do we? We sort of think those are opposite ends of the spectrum. But both holiness and mercy are fully active in God. He's perfectly holy, he's set apart, he's morally pure, and at the same time, in the same actions, he is incredibly gracious and merciful to those who are in need. But notice in verse 50 who he is merciful to. He's merciful, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So who are those who fear him? To fear God is to be humble. It's to rightly relate to him by recognizing your position as a creature, someone who has been created by God, and a sinful creature at that, and then to recognize God's position as the authoritative, sovereign Lord of all. And so to fear God is to do exactly what Mary did. Remember her response in verse 38? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She responded in obedience. She received God's word, believed God's word, accepted it, and responded in obedience without question. She knew she was a servant before the Lord. She was humble in that way. And so she showed her fear of the Lord. This is the picture, verse 50, is the picture that we get throughout the Old Testament of God's disposition toward his people. You consistently see God acting like this toward his people. He wants them to fear him, and he promises to do good if they will fear him. And he promises to do good from generation to generation. Notice how this works itself out in verses 51 to 53. Look there. She got the principle in verse 50, and then specific ways this works itself out. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So it's interesting here, Mary puts all of these events in the past tense. She acts like this is something that God has already done, but in reality, this hasn't happened fully yet, has it? 
All of these events, these reversals of bringing down the proud and exalting the humble, these are all events that are in the future still. And that's why I call this eschatological reversal. This is something that Mary is hoping in and expecting. But she's so confident it's going to happen, she uses the past tense here to speak as if God has already done, done these events and done these things. And so God will have mercy, mercy on those who fear him, and he will not allow the proud to stand. Pride has a way of competing with God, doesn't it? Pride has a way of wanting a share of God's glory. But Mary fully expects that at the end of time, God will set things right, and he will do that by reversing the riches of the powerful, bringing them down, bringing the prideful down, bringing them low, while at the same time exalting the ones who are humble and who fear him. Now, as you think about this, and as you think about the way that God acts throughout Scripture and the way Mary expects him to act in the future here, his mercy being toward those who fear him, I want you to try to bring this principle into your own life. She says in verse 50 that God always acts this way. He always has and he always will. And this is still true for us today. But this is hard to to feel in your life. Let me say it that way. This is hard to look around the world and accept that this is true of God. Because we don't often see this reversal in the present, do we? We often look around and it feels like and it seems like those who are rich and powerful and proud and arrogant, those who stomp on the little guy, seem to be doing quite well. And those who are trusting the Lord and fearing the Lord and pursuing him seem like they struggle. They sure don't seem like they're triumphing. But Mary says here, God has always acted this way and he will bring about this reversal. And she's confident that he sees and he knows and it will come in his timing. In fact, we'll talk about this later, his salvation, his deliverance is built on this reversal. This is how the reversal takes place, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. When you struggle with this, when you look out at the world and think, man, things are so upside down, and what is good is called wicked, and what is wicked is called good, and when you look out and it seems like the wicked are prospering, consider Mary's words here, and I want to read you part of a psalm that gets to the heart of this, Psalm 73. You can turn over there if you want. I'm not going to put it on the screen. But I'm going to read a a section of this psalm to you. This is exactly the problem and the issue that the psalmist is struggling with here. Listen to this psalm. It's a psalm of Asaph. Verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is Psalm 73. And listen to this. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so in this psalm, the psalmist in verse 1 knows that God is good to Israel, but he looks around the world and says, man, it sure doesn't seem like 
you are good to your people, Lord. Verse 4. For the wicked, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But look at this, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And he continues on. You can read that later. But he's struggling with this in his life, watching what is happening. And then when he goes to the Lord and enters the presence of the Lord, he recognizes this great eschatological reversal is going to take place. And that's exactly what Mary recognizes here too and understands that this is a key part of God's deliverance and of his salvation. And he is to be praised for doing this and for when he will do this. But the question is, how can Mary be so confident that God's going to do this? How can she be so confident there will be this sort of reversal and the humble will be exalted and the proud will be put low? That's the last ingredient of God's salvation, covenantal remembrance. So personal deliverance, but recognizing that her personal deliverance, her blessing comes through a much larger story, a much larger picture, what God is doing in reversing the proud and the humble. And then he will do that reversal through and on the basis of this last ingredient, his covenantal remembrance. Here is the crux of the matter. This is the basis for how God brings about salvation and how he will deliver Israel. This is the basis for his mercy to his people. It's his covenant. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Notice in verse 54 that he calls Israel his servant. And he calls them his servant because that makes a connection back to his covenant with them. Let me read you Isaiah 41. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God makes it clear here that Israel is his servant and she will not be cast aside because he has chosen her and brought her into a relationship. He's committed to her. But notice in Isaiah, 
He specifically mentions, God mentions Abraham just like Mary does here. Back in Luke 1, verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. We talked about this a few weeks ago, if you were here with us for our series on the gospel. But this, here's what Mary is getting at here. Here's the basis for God's salvation and his deliverance. She's confident that God is going to fulfill his promises to Israel and help them because of the covenant that he made with Abraham in the Old Testament, because of all of the covenants that he made with his people in the Old Testament. She specifically mentions Abraham because that's really the starting point for his relationship with Israel. What did God promise to Abraham? He promised in Genesis 12 to make a great nation of Abraham's descendants and to plant that nation in a land where he would dwell with them. And then he promised that through them that they would be a blessing to the entire world. Then, of course, after Abraham, God carried that promise to the entire nation of Israel in Exodus when he delivered them from Egypt and constituted them a nation, and then he brought them into the promised land and specifically made a promise and a covenant with David that his seed would reign forever over his people, a promise to David and his line, and then that promise received further clarification in the new covenant. And God promised to Israel that he would give them a new heart and forgive their sins. And so Mary here is confident that God's promises to Abraham will come to pass. All right, now, this is the point where we need to zoom out a little bit. And we need to think about all three of these ingredients, and we need to consider how these ingredients are brought about. How does personal deliverance happen? How does this reversal take place? And how does God remember his covenant and act on his promises to Israel? Well, it all is going to happen through the birth and the life of this baby boy who's born to Mary. I mean, this is the crux of the promise. This is the concrete nature of it. And this is why she's so excited, because God has said everything that is to be expected of God's deliverance to Israel in the Old Testament is going to happen through your son, through this child that has been promised to you. He's going to bring about personal deliverance for many, many people as he inaugurates the new covenant and forgives their sin. He's going to exalt the humble and tear down the proud as he himself is humbled in death and he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's going to inaugurate the new covenant through his shed blood. He's going to bring blessings to the nations as he promised to Abraham, blessings to the Gentiles, as they are grafted into these promises made to Israel. And he's going to fulfill all of that through the Davidic king, the king of Israel, who's going to rule and reign forever. That's the crux of all of this. That's how all of this takes place. And that's what Luke is setting us up for here. Now, what's so, what I love about this psalm, this song What's so amazing about this song and these promises of salvation that will happen through this baby boy, what's so amazing about all of this is the way this psalm presents God as the one who is the initiator and the actor. If you look and read through this song, God is the subject of almost every verb. 
not to get too English teachery-ish here. There's nothing wrong with English teachers. I love them. But God is the subject of almost every verb. He's the one who acts. He's the one who initiates. He does not require the lowly sinner to rise to his heights. He's not standing at the top of 10,000 stairs saying, if you can just make it up to me, if you can just do the work, if you can just try really, really hard and make it up to me, then you'll be good. No, he's standing at the top of 10,000 stairs and he's sending his son down those stairs to come down to humbled and lost sinners. And that's what he's telling Mary here. Look at the language. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has done great things. He has shown strength. He scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. Over and over and over again, God acts. He has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry. He has sent the rich away empty. He has given help to Israel. He promised, just as he promised to Abraham and to his offspring, over and over and over again. Mary's not the one acting here. She's receiving. God is the one promising. God is the one doing. God is the one fulfilling. And here's here's where this comes to bear on us this holiday season. Here's my exhortation to you and to me as well. Rest in the activity, the action, the initiation of God for you. That's what this season is all about. It's not about us climbing up to heaven. It's about God coming down to earth. It's about him acting for us. And so rest in that. Rejoice and magnify him. Respond and worship to him for what he has done for us. Stop trying to work your way into his favor. Stop thinking that you have to earn a seat at the table or that you have to do something to be accepted into his presence. Slow down and sink into his grace and his mercy. And understand during this season that that grace and mercy has been clearly demonstrated and clearly displayed in the glorious reality of the incarnation. And magnify him for his action. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. You have acted for us, and we rejoice in that. Thank you for our deliverance. Thank you for the way that you will set things right in the future. We thank you for your covenantal remembrance of your promises and how we as Gentiles have been grafted into those promises and we receive them through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for for acting when we could not act. Help us to receive your grace and rejoice in your grace and just respond in love and affection for you. We thank you for this time of year. We thank you for the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.